We'll do the lecture verse. The unsurpassed, penetrating, and perfect truth is seldom met with, even in a hundred thousand myriad kalpas. Now we can see and hear it. We can remember and accept it. I vow to make the Buddha's truth one with myself. Homage to the Buddha. Homage to the Dharma. Homage to the Sangha. So thank you all for coming today, both in person and visually. Virtually, I guess is the word. And I wanted to thank Reverend Master Mayon for inviting me to do this talk on a Memorial Day for Reverend Master G.U. Um, this November 6th, it will be 26 years since she died. And I had um, the honor and the good fortune to be with her on a regular basis for the last five years of her life. I still had my RN license, and I was her nurse chaplain. And we spent... Um, summers either at down at the Berkeley Priory or out at Fugen Hermitage or out at Brookings, Oregon. So it was a real learning experience for me. And it is still a learning experience 26 years later. And I often think about those times and I often go back to some of her writings and some of her lectures. And I was thinking, if I, if I had to sum up what I've learned, both then and, and in these years since, it would be acceptance and contentment, which I find quite remarkable. As some of you will know, the last few years of her life, she wasn't able to walk. Uh, we had to move her from chair to bed with a Hoyer lift. Uh, when you're sitting on your bottom for a long time, you get pressure sores. They're not comfortable. They're not fun to have people mess around with. Um, but she always showed her gratitude and her generosity for anything that we did for her. And the patience that she showed was just remarkable, particularly for some of us that tend to be picky and choosy and go on about things. And eventually, it would get to the point where she'd look at me and she'd say, well, get on with it, lass. And I think, okay, the time for chatting is over. She doesn't need any more information. I just need to go and do what needs to be done. And... When I was thinking about that, what it brought up for me is something that has helped me a great deal in my daily practice when I have to make a decision and it's a difficult decision or it's one I don't want to make or one I don't feel comfortable making. I don't know where I learned this from, but the little verse is, If not now, when? That's been very helpful. And if not here, where? One of the things that she taught me 
was to look at every situation as a gift. I've been here for a little over 30 years, and I still have opinions about what's good and bad. So looking at every situation as a gift, it's kind of like, wait a minute, you've got to be kidding. Look at every situation as a gift and ask yourself, how can I help? How may I do good right now, right here, where I am? And that took me, probably from something I was reading, to the three pure precepts. And I'd like to talk about those for a little bit. As We have different translations of them, but the one that we use the most often is cease from evil, do only good, and do good for others. Well, when I first came across them many, many years ago as a layperson coming to the Abbey and eventually taking the precepts, was I'm not doing evil. I'm not going around killing and robbing and stepping on spiders and all those other things. So what does that mean for me? But over the years, something has niggled at me. And I have always been interested in what evil means. And I'm going to read you a little bit from Dido Laurie later on on evil. But first, what I did, because I'm a pre-internet generation, so I go to a dictionary that has paper pages. And what I found was... And and it's interesting, there was an inch and a half of text on what the definition of evil is. But I'll read you just a few of the definitions. Causing an undesired condition. Characterized by anger or spite. I thought, ooh, that's getting close to home. That which causes or constitutes misfortune, suffering, or difficulty. I kind of went ouch with that one. That which is morally bad or wrong. So I read all that and I thought, oh, cease from evil. Let me look into that from a Buddhist perspective a little more deeply than I have. In a book written, obviously before he died, by John Dido Laurie, this is what he had to say about evil. On the surface, the three pure precepts, not creating evil, practicing good, and actualizing good for others seem rather simplistic. In reality, they are a bottomless source of teachings critically relevant in our day-to-day practice of Zen and in our lives. The precepts begin where the intimacy that encompasses heaven and earth is realized. Not creating evil is the fundamental teaching of Buddhism. 
is a central pillar of our practice. The three pure precepts are pure because they are absolute. They are pure because they reach everywhere. Evil has no independent existence. It is dependent upon its creator. It's easy enough, I think, to look or listen to the current news and to see the evil that's being inflicted on others and created by a person. It is not so easy to look and listen to ourselves and see where we are doing evil. But that's what our practice is all about. When you look at, and he continues, when you look at the ten grave precepts from the perspective of the three pure precepts, not creating evil is do not kill, do not steal, do not misuse sexuality, do not lie, do not cloud the mind, do not speak of others' errors and faults, do not elevate the self and blame others, do not be withholding, do not be angry, and do not defile the three treasures. So just in reciting those ten, we recognize that generosity and gratitude and compassion are key to keeping the precepts. Practicing good, he continues, is the other side of not creating evil. Practicing good is affirming life, being giving, honoring the body, manifesting truth, proceeding clearly, seeing the perfection, realizing self and other as one. All is, and if you recall, Reverend Jiyu would often say, all is one and all is different. He, Dido Lari continues to give generously, actualize harmony, and express the intimacy of things. And he closes this section by writing, each of the ten grave precepts expresses how not to create evil and how to practice good. One side is affirmative, one side is prohibitive, and they work together. They are interdependent and arise mutually. Actualizing good for others is nothing other than the mutual identity of not creating evil and practicing good. And he concludes, it is the great heart of Kanzian Bosatsu manifesting in the world as compassion. And that's what it's up to us to do, to explore our practice, to be diligent in our practice, so that we exhibit compassion in the world. As I was exploring this, it came to me that not only my definition of evil and what I think of 
when I see that word. But I have to look at a lot of the words I use. And I've learned to look at situations that I go, ooh, and wrinkle my nose up at and saying they're challenging rather than difficult. And that's made a big difference. Oh, this is a challenging situation. Instead of this is difficult, it's one I don't want to be in. Um, Another monk once said to me that he realized that he had the habit of saying, what a stupid thing to do, both about himself and about others. So here's this six-foot-plus big guy, monk, and so what he substituted for what a stupid thing to do was what a silly thing to do. And you almost laugh when he says that. But it's made a difference for me, especially, and I started out with using that with other people, and then I started using it with myself. And it's wonderful to not call yourself stupid. Of course, I know that none of you do that, right? But for those one or two that may, try. That was a silly thing to do. And then I remembered the kind of a play on words that came up to me many years ago. And it's just a short sentence. Success is getting what you want. And happiness is wanting what you get. And I thought that was an amazing Buddhist teaching, and it came from Charlie Brown. It was a, a two-frame cartoon. The first one, he's there with you know his little smile, and he's saying, success is getting what you want. And then in the next frame, same smile, he's saying, happiness is, what you, happiness is wanting what you get. And that has made a really amazing difference in my life. So how do we make this life-changing situation? Well, one of the things is changing the way we think about things. And I've always been a very occupied person. I've always had seven dozen things to do at the same time. And probably that's not new to you. One of the things that I, li- that I like is what I learned from poetry. And this is by A.R. Ammons. The quickest way to change the world is to like it the way it is. And I thought, gee, that fits in very nicely with happiness is wanting what you get. The quickest way to change the world is to like it the way it is. So rather than being critical of the situation that I find myself in, I can say, oh, this is very challenging. What can I do here? What is there for me to learn here? So... We want to remember that just sitting, pure meditation, is all there is, and that's all we have to do. And it's complete, 
of itself and just sitting is not enough because there are not enough mirrors when you sit whether you're facing a wall or facing your refrigerator or you know the couch in your living room wherever you sit just sitting is not enough because you're not going to see what your thought what your reactions are you're not going to see how you affect other people but it's our practice it's our practice that makes the difference and we need other people and other situations to see who we really are we need a continual and consistent transition from formal meditation to getting on with it in daily life I generally both in preparing a dharma talk and something's coming up for me in meditation or I'm having a difficult time I usually try to think of something that Reverend Master Jiu some advice that she gave and I often go back to volume 1 of Roar of the Tigress because there's so much practical advice that I can understand in there so In chapter 3 this is what she says about meditation and daily life studying and following a way of life based on enlightened action even though we do it imperfectly is the other foundation of zen alongside meditation the latter brings us to the truth from the inside out the former brings us to the truth from the inside out the former brings us to the truth from the inside in they complement and nourish one another both are necessary so let me read that again because i think i didn't read it too accurately studying and following a way of life based on enlightened action even though we do it imperfectly is the other foundation of zen alongside meditation the latter meditation brings us to the truth from the inside out and the former enlightened action brings us to the truth from the outside in they complement each other and both are necessary So you can't just sit and look at a wall. And you can't just not look at a wall. Whether it's literally looking at a wall or not, but we can't do without our pure meditation. So thinking about that, I realized that as a young novice, the tra- transition, although I didn't think about it at the time, between sitting on my cushion I was still able to do that at the time and working in the kitchen or working taking nails out of wood there was something in between that and for novices at that time it was ceremonial we were taught how to do ceremonial and i have to tell you that 
after three years in a Catholic girls' school when I was a teenager, I wasn't interested in ceremonial at all. It just didn't make sense to me. I thought it was a little artificial. However, that's what we were expected to do. And it was a challenging opportunity to find if we could truly sit still in the midst of things happening that we didn't know what to do and we didn't know why it was happening. And I can remember the amount of effort that went into holding incense sticks in the correct way, usually for morning service, as we did just now. Reverend Enya held one incense stick. But sometimes you hold three, and sometimes you hold five. And you have to hold them in such a way that you can take one and pass it on. And it, doesn't, it may not sound like much. It took a lot for me to learn to do that. Um, you're first of all an acolyte, which if you've noticed are the two monks that are standing next to the vestry with the incense box and the, and the incense. And the chaplain and the assistant chaplain come up and take them from them. It's all very formal and it's all very regulated because you have to work together. And what you don't want to do is drop the incense or drop the incense box. Although I've seen that happen. Um, you have to be aware of what you're doing and what's next to you. And if the celebrant decides to go left rather than right, you can't stand there and go, oh, aren't we supposed to be going left? No, you just go right. You just go right. With a smile in your heart, you figure it'll all be okay. So in a similar fashion to putting effort into learning ceremony, we can make a ceremony of our daily life. And one of the things that I started doing when I was, before I came to the monastery, because I was interested in ceremony, was trying to be mindful when I was washing the dishes. Now, that may seem like an obvious thing to do, but how many of you wash the dishes and either have a conversation with someone else at the same time, or you start going over your to-do list for tomorrow, but what would happen if you approached everything that you handle the way that we approach holding the incense in the incense box? So when you take that glass out, you have some gratitude for the glass that's allowed you to drink. You have some gratitude for the pan that you've cooked your food in. Well, what do you do if you have a dishwasher? You do the same thing. You handle each item in a fashion that allows you to express your gratitude. When I was still a lay person, I had two jobs before I came to the monastery, and it involved um, getting up, going out to my car early in the morning, going to a health clinic, and then about two in the afternoon, driving to another city, making rounds in a hospital, and then driving back in the evening and what I learned to do and this just came up 
for me out of my practice was that I, be, before I put the key, and I locked the car at night because of where we were parked. When I put the key in, I made gasho, and I said the three homages. And I did the same thing after I'd unlocked the car and I put the key in the ignition. And I would find ways to do this throughout the day. Um, this, of course, was a long time ago, and I used to, you know, change the oil in my car and change the spark plugs and change the air filter. And you can do those things. You can do all of those things in a very mindful and grateful way. And that's what looking at our daily life as a ceremony allows us to do. I try to express my gratitude as much as I can throughout the day. And I realized that I was leaving the room that I sleep in, in the Bodhidharma Hall, and for some reason I turned around and looked, and I thought, you know, given all that's going on in the world, I slept last night in a safe and comfortable bed. My room was a reasonable temperature. I have an indoor toilet right next to my bedroom, the bedroom I sleep in. I have running water, and it was all very quiet. I didn't hear any shells. I didn't hear any bombing. I was safe. And I think I can comfortably say that that is true for most everybody here. But how many of us, when we walk out of our bedroom in the morning, how many of us make a show and bow and say thank you? It was a remarkable experience for me because I realized that there are so many things that I take for granted in my daily life that I took for granted when I was a lay person and that I can express gratitude for. I think that contentment comes when we give ourselves wholeheartedly to the moment that we're in without criticizing, without judging. Acceptance is living in that moment without the judgment and the criticism and the ill will. Simply doing what needs to be done and trusting your heart of compassion and wisdom. Doing what needs to be done and doing what you can do for the moment. Here's another passage that I like from Roar One. When Reverend Master Jiyu says, she's talking about monastic and lay life. And she's talking about when we're not satisfied with what we have or where we are or who we are. And she says, Another difference between the monastic and the laity is how they are of benefit to others. Whoops, that's not the passage I want. This is what I want. What the lay person understands in training 
they show in their everyday life and in the way they benefit and teach others, although not doing so consciously. They teach by example, simply by going through life, practicing the Bodhisattva way without bugging people and without trying deliberately to teach them, just by doing that which a Bodhisattva does, you will teach. Just by doing the Bodhisattva act, you will benefit all beings. And this unassuming practice of the Bodhisattva way is the final and great achievement of the lay person and the reason for their existence. So, let me just add that personally, my definition of enlightened action is being generous, kind, wise, and grateful. What is your definition of enlightened action? How would you describe enlightened action? How would you describe changing your attitude about what makes you happy? When you think about getting what you want, what words come to mind? Ask yourself how you open and close your day. Another little saying that I like is, so much to do and so little time. So much to be and all the time we need. When I think about my relationship to time and doing, I think about another poem by A.R. Amens. I have nowhere to go and nowhere to go when I get back from there. (laughs) Homage to the Buddha, homage to the Dharma, homage to the Sangha. Thank you all so much for coming.